Welcome back to the Manly Saints Project, by me, Hugh Hunter. We live in a world that struggles to understand the virtues of manliness. Our culture doesn't provide young men, or any men for that matter, with a lot of positive male role models. When I became a Catholic, I wanted to show how the saints could be manly role models for us. My weekly exploration of manly saints became the Manly Saints Project. If you enjoy my work, please consider signing up and supporting me on Substack, or click the links in the show notes to buy me a beer. Now, let's meet this week's Manly Saint. Join me today to hear the story of a young man who had the challenge of his life thrust upon him. Name, Vedast, Vast, Wast, Zoster, Foster in England, Gaston in France, but not Badastus. Life, died mid-6th century A.D. Status, Saint, Feast, February 6th. Clovis, son of Childeric, had united the pagan tribes of the Franks. The Franks were one of the peoples who had come into the dying Roman Empire, building their kingdoms in the north, in what is today Germany and France. And eventually, under Clovis, the Franks were strong enough to challenge Siagrius, the last northern representative of the Roman Empire. The Romans under Siagrius marched out to meet Clovis. But the Roman era was long gone. Clovis crushed them, sending Siagrius running back to Italy, which was now under the control of another tribe, the Goths. When Clovis demanded Siagrius, the Goths looked north and decided that Clovis was not someone they wanted to antagonize. They quickly sent Siagrius back in chains. After all, as St. Gregory of Tours would write from the Frankish lands, it is the habit of Goths to tremble with fear. Clovis was the sort of man who might make someone tremble. On one occasion, someone defied him by not giving Clovis an artifact that Clovis demanded. Sooner than let Clovis have it, the fellow destroyed the artifact with a blow of his axe. Clovis had been embarrassed in front of his men. For some time, Clovis said nothing as the rage built up in him. And then, Clovis responded by swinging his own axe, two-handed, into the man's head and leaving him as broken as the thing Clovis had asked for. Clovis looked around, and no one else was feeling defiant. By this, Gregory of Tours says dryly, Clovis gained a considerable amount of fearful respect. But there was one person who was not intimidated by Clovis, and that was his wife, the future saint, Clotilde. Clotilde was a Christian princess who had been married off to the pagan Clovis for the sake of politics. You might have expected Clotilde to be a passive figure, praying for her husband's soul. But not really. The gods you worship are nothing, she would say. They could help neither themselves nor others, since they were fashioned of wood, stone, or metal. To hear Gregory of Tours tell it, Clotilde had done her homework before she arrived. She would point out that in the sagas, the pagan gods were rapists with messed up families. 
scholars had long suggested that perhaps what the pagans remembered as gods were just great men of the past, and Clotilda agreed with this theory. But most importantly, she thought it was silly to worship a god, who merely fulfilled some function in the natural world, when you could worship the god who created the universe. Who should be worshipped is he who had a word created out of nothing heaven and earth, the sea and everything within it. In time, Clotilda gave birth to a boy. Clovis wanted the boy raised pagan, but Clotilda had the boy baptized. Soon after, the boy got sick and died. This was a sign, Clovis insisted, that the gods were angry. It put Clotilda in a difficult position. She had another son and had him baptized too. Again, the boy got very sick. Clotilda knew that there was a limit to how hard she could push Clovis, and she prayed. Eventually, the boy recovered. Meanwhile, another Germanic tribe was growing in power. The Alamanni united under a single great king, much as the Franks had done. Soon they were a match for Clovis. Their armies met at the Battle of Tolbiac, thought to be near modern Züblich, on the west side of Germany, near the Belgian border. As Clovis looked out over the fighting, he realized that he was losing. All around him, Clovis saw his men pushed back. He had prayed to his gods, but now they seemed to have abandoned him when everything was on the line. And as he watched his formation collapse, Clovis kept thinking of his wife and her strong faith. Finally, he did something desperate. He had been listening to Clotilda's complaints, a bit, and so he scraped together what he remembered about his wife's God and began to pray. Jesus Christ, he said, you, who Clotilde proclaims, are the son of the living God, who are said to give aid to those in distress and to grant victory to those that put their hopes in you, I humbly implore your glory for help. If you grant me the victory over these enemies, and if I experience the power that people dedicated to your name claim to have proven is yours, then I shall believe in you and be baptized in your name. For I have called upon my own gods, but as I am finding out, they have stopped helping me, so I don't think they have any power if they don't come to help their servants. I now call upon you and wish to believe in you, provided I am rescued from my enemies. And as he prayed, the battle turned again. Soon the Franks were ascendant, smashing through the Alemanni and killing the king who had united them. What was left of their army surrendered to Clovis. Now, some kings would have been tempted to backslide on a promise like Clovis's. But Clovis, for all his faults, was a man of his word. He decided to ride to Reims, modern Reims, where he knew there was a well-known archbishop who could baptize him. But before he got there, Clovis wanted someone to explain to him what Christianity was actually about. And that is where today's manly saint enters the picture. In the nearby town of Toul, in the northeast of modern France, there was a young man named Vedastus, or as we usually call him, Vedast. Vedast had a reputation for being a good Christian. He may have been a priest, although that isn't certain. He was probably quite young, perhaps 
barely into his twenties. One day, Clovis's soldiers arrived, gave him a horse, and told him that he had been volunteered to come and teach the great pagan conqueror about God. It must have been a daunting summons. Clovis was a much older man. His violent temper was legendary. And as Vadast rode to meet the king, he must have realized that the stakes were high. If Clovis was converted, many of his men would follow him and the Frankish kingdom could be evangelized. If Vadast failed, Clovis might remain a pagan. Or he might join the heresy of Arianism, as many of the other tribes had done, and become a persecutor of the church. But Vadast was wrong about the stakes. In truth, they were far higher than he knew. Europe was spiraling into the period we call the Dark Ages. Pagan raiders would appear throughout Europe, and soon the new religion of Islam would march out to subdue the world. To a large extent, what would stand between Europe and these dark forces would be the kingdom of the Franks. Two centuries later, it would be the Franks under Charles the Hammer who would stop the armies of Islam from entering the heart of Europe. Three centuries later, the king of the Franks, Charles the Great, would accept the title of Holy Roman Emperor and begin the era of Christendom. But history would only flow in this direction, provided that a young man named Vadast could convince an old king. The life of Vadast hints that at first, the encounter did not go well. It's easy to imagine why. Perhaps Vadast had built up all sorts of arguments against pagans, and they sounded better in his head than when he tried them on the king. Maybe he got too theoretical. It wasn't easy to explain Christianity, and we know that Christians tried different ways to explain the Gospels to the Germanic tribes, including writing the Heliand, a Saxon epic poem that transposed the story of Christ into a context that made sense. In that story, Jesus becomes the leader of a war band betrayed by Judas, one of his captains. Maybe Vadast tried to come up with his own version. At some point, Clovis was losing focus, and Vadast wasn't certain of what to say. I wonder whether the moment made Vadast think of Matthew 10, 19, and 20, which described the very situation he was in, of being handed over to a governor or, worst-case scenario, a king, and being forced to give an account. Jesus had told his disciples not to worry, not even to prepare. It is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. It seems that, at some point on the journey, Vadast realized that he wasn't going to convince the king on his own. So he put the matter in God's hands. And that was when interesting things began to happen. As they were riding through a village, a blind man called for Vadast by name, asking him for healing. And in telling the story, our early medieval source does something unusual for the period, and tells us what Vadast felt at that moment. Vadast suddenly felt himself filled with the power of God. He knew that he could heal the blind men. But with the sense of power came an understanding of what he was supposed to do with it. Suddenly, 
Vadast's doubts and uncertainties melted away, and he knew why this blind man had been sent at this moment. And so Vadast said, Lord Jesus, who art the true light, and didst open the eyes of the blind man when he called unto thee, open the eyes of this man also, that this people may understand that thou art the only God who doest miracles in heaven and on earth. The blind man was healed. Clovis might have been a warlord, but he was no fool. He understood the metaphor. Something shifted in his mind, and when the conversation began again, Vadast started to make progress. And so, by the time they arrived at Reims, Clovis had come to understand his wife's faith. Well, mostly. Later, Clovis told a bishop he had never liked the story of Christ being taken away to be crucified by Roman soldiers. Clovis had beaten Romans before, and he told the bishop that if he had been there with his Franks to protect Jesus, things would have worked out differently. But now, at Reims, Archbishop Remedius, the future Saint-Rémy, was waiting. The cathedral was prepared for the baptism of the king. Candles were burning, and the walls were hung with beautiful tapestries. The choir was singing. At the door, Clovis looked around and was impressed. He quietly asked the archbishop whether he was looking at the kingdom of God he had heard about from Vedast. No, smiled the archbishop. It was rather the entrance to the path that led to the kingdom. And then the archbishop brought Clovis into the cathedral to be baptized. After the baptism, Clovis went on his way. Vedast stayed in Reims. If he was not already a priest, he was ordained at this time. It seems that Vedast wasn't sure where God was calling him. But he had caught the attention of Archbishop Remedius. This humble young man who had brought the king to God might be exactly what Remedius needed. Vedast had persuaded a king. Could he persuade a whole city? In the northwest of modern France was an old Roman fortress town. It was called Atrabatum, although today we call it Arras. Once upon a time, Arras had a thriving Christian community. But then, as Rome collapsed, waves of barbarians had rolled through, and all the Christians had either been killed or fled the town. Arras was still there, but it had reverted to paganism. The citizens had forgotten the church, and perhaps they thought the church had forgotten them as well. But Remedius had not forgotten them. And now he had found a man he thought he could trust to go to Arras and bring the city the good news. Again. And so, Archbishop Remedius made Vedast a bishop, and sent him to Arras. Once again, I have to imagine that Vedast found himself praying for the right words and the right approach. And once again, God provided. At the gates of the city, Vedast was approached by two beggars, one blind, one lame. They approached Vedast asking for money. Vedast felt the healing power of God within him, and he healed them 
sending them running delightedly into the town in front of him. It was a good entrance. In the city, the Dast started looking for the place the church had once been. He found what was left of it. It had fallen down, and there were only a few walls left standing. And when Vadas started exploring, he discovered that a bear had taken up residence in the ruins. To German pagans, the bear was a majestic animal, a spiritual animal, and the symbolism of the pagan bear who had taken up residence in the collapsed church wasn't lost on Vadast. He prayed, O Lord, these things have come upon us because we have sinned with our fathers and have acted unjustly and done iniquity. But thou, Lord, be mindful of thy mercy, spare our offenses, and do not forget thy poor people forever. And as he prayed, God sent an encouraging sign. The bear scampered off and didn't return to the ruins. The dast got down to the hard work of literally and figuratively rebuilding a church. And so, Vadast began to rebuild. Vadast wasn't aggressive, he wasn't frothing at the mouth, but he was firm. He helped the poor with whatever he had. And he found that his time with Clovis had taught him how to deal with the local aristocracy. Vadast began to make converts. As the years passed, the church grew. Young men were called to become priests. The church became an important part of city life. And soon, it had been 40 years since Vadast had first come through the city gates. And then, one day, the people of Arras noticed a strange play of light over the house of where the old bishop lived, and when they went to see him, they found that he had died. The Christian community of Arras mourned. They already suspected that they had been sent a saint. As the bishop's body lay in the church that he had restored, some who were there insisted that unseen voices joined the choir in their song. Vedast had been a manly saint because he had stepped up to answer for the faith when everything was on the line. And as Europe entered the Dark Ages, the church needed men like him. The old Roman Empire was slipping away. Raiders were already appearing to loot what was left. No one was quite sure which cities or even which civilizations would survive and which would pass away. I think, perhaps, that was why the story of St. Vedast struck such a chord. St. Vedast was the bishop who had come back to a city that had forgotten the church. The saint seemed to promise that even if everything went wrong, even if the old church became the home of a bear, one day someone would come and the church would live again. The saint's story spread through Europe into modern Belgium, where he came to be called Wast, throughout France, where he was remembered as Gaston, and into England, where he was called Foster. The story even went as far as Scotland, where he was remembered as Badastus, 
although a Scottish monk said he had a vision of Vedast which was mostly about spiritual things, but where the saint also drew the line at the Scots' abysmal pronunciation. Not long after St. Vedast's death, there was a fire in Ahas. Many houses burned. But somehow, the house where Bishop Vedast had used to live was untouched. One Christian woman said she saw the saint appear to put the fire out around his house himself. At first reading, it's not obvious why this miracle was so encouraging to the Christian community. It makes sense when you consider the darkness and uncertainty of the times. To the Christians, the story seemed to say that Arras might have lost the faith once, but that had not been on St. Vedast's watch. He had set up the church in Arras and got everything the way it was supposed to be. Now, St. Vedast wasn't going anywhere. <laughs>